0: everyone want to thank you so much for joining me for episode 36 of the mark Guy show Uh, episode 35 we had quite a bit of positive feedback and i was very encouraged by that i think that people liked the use of clips the topic obviously was was relevant and i'm going to try to do more of those specific topic episodes moving forward and i like kind of the breakdown idea of being able to take a speech or being able to take some sort of appearance and be able to break it down into pieces and refute it or say why, why I agree with it or you know, however I want to break it down. But I like that episode a lot and I think the response I got from people echoes that. So I want to make it clear again, please go out and subscribe to us on iTunes, on Stitcher, uh, whatever podcast aggregating app that you use. It, this show should be out there. If it's not, please let me know. I want it to be available out there and I want to get those subscriber numbers up. And I think getting those subscriber numbers up will in turn get the listen count up. So thank you for all of your feedback, everybody out there. I heard from quite a few people that I hadn't heard from in a long time. I've heard from people that I don't even know saying that they enjoyed the show. So hopefully I can keep bringing that kind of content moving forward. I picked probably the worst week to not put out a show. So much news came out this week. There are. At least 10 stories I think that I could hit on in this episode. There are a few I know I'm going to, but I don't want to make an hour and a half long podcast. So my plan is probably to hit as much as I can today and then put out another episode on Wednesday, hopefully. It looks like Wednesday night I should be relatively free. I did go and see the Red Hot Chili Peppers on Saturday night. Just had a busy week last week as well. So. I wasn't able to take advantage of all the great news stories that were out there, and I was definitely itching to do an episode, but I'm going to have to try to fit as much in today as I can. So some things that I need to hit on in this episode. I do want to talk about the Betsy DeVos hearing with the Senate. Uh, Elizabeth Warren made herself very known at that event. Bernie Sanders as well. I want to talk about that, talk about what they said and the way that they were framing questions. I certainly need to talk a little bit about Barack Obama's legacy. And I need to talk about Trump's inauguration and what he's done so far in his first few days in office. Today's January 23rd, so we're three days in to the Donald Trump administration. And what has he done so far? What can we expect moving forward? Those are the things I definitely want to hit. There are other stories too that if I can if I can kind of zoom through those fairly quickly, then I will hit on those other stories. But first I'm going to talk about this Betsy DeVos hearing, and maybe this isn't what people expected me to talk about to start this show, but the Senate really hammered her on her position basically on on charter schools and on school choice. And I did a whole episode about school choice before, I'll post a link to it on the website. Uh, I forget which episode it was, but in that episode I talked about why I don't necessarily necessarily think charter schools will solve all of our problems, but I did also say in that episode that if I'm if I'm being practical, then I, I do think that's a step in the right direction. And I think one of the biggest problems with education in the United States is lack of competition. And specifically K through twelve education is lack of competition. And I saw a lot of people on my Facebook feed, a lot of people my age, I, I know a lot of teachers. And everybody came out basically demonizing DeVos because she has the nerve to say that public schools aren't doing their job. And I completely agree with her that public schools are not doing their jobs. And keeping the status quo is the worst thing that we can do for public education, for education in general in this country. And I've talked about in in prior episodes that I really do think that pure markets and education would be best but i also know that we cannot go from where we are now to there in one fell swoop so it's all about moving toward greater freedom it's all about moving in that direction and i think a lot of people that are more liberty-minded can generally agree on which direction we need to move they may not agree on it once we get to a certain point maybe then there will be some some contention over what's the best course of action but we know that what we're doing now is not working We're continually pouring more and more money into our public schools, and we are getting at best stagnating results, if not worsening results. Our teachers are from the bottom of the barrel academically, on average, and I say that knowing many teachers myself, loving many teachers, and I know there are many brilliant ones out there, but on the average, and this is very well supported by fact, they're from the bottom of the barrel academically. And then that translates into relatively poor teacher performance. Whereas if you were drawing more from the general population of university students, our teacher quality would be far higher. But that's just one—that's just you know one weakness of many in our schools. The administrations are bloated. Um, there's not a, there's not enough accountability because there's not competition. Yeah, they can say accountability. You can say accountability all you want, but at the end of the day, nobody's more accountable than an organization that truly wonders, am I going to exist tomorrow? That's where true accountability comes in. Or somebody that really thinks, could I be out of a job tomorrow? That's where true accountability comes from. And our public schools do not have it. And There are many public schools throughout the country that are performing fairly well. That are performing quite well, you could even say. And I think I went to a public school that generally performed pretty well. I think I was one of the lucky ones, at least relative to uh, the rest of my fellow Americans in my peer group. But there are lots of public schools out there failing students miserably. But you have somebody like Betsy DeVos coming up and trying to become the secretary of the Department of Education. And these senators are grilling her like she's trying to take apart this wonderful system, this system that has fantastic results. Now if we were getting incredible results out of our public schools, say if costs were gradually declining while performance stayed the same or if we were able to keep costs relatively stable and performance was getting better and better, then I would say, yeah, why do we need to disrupt the status quo? We can keep the status quo in place. But public school in the United States, public schools in the United States are not doing a good job. And you have all these people running to the defense of the status quo and what we have been doing. And, okay, we can argue whether or not charter schools are the best way to to educate our children. We can have that argument. But when people just take the argument that if you would like to see competition for the public schools, you hate poor students, you hate poor children or poor people, or you just want rich people to be able to get away from everybody else – I mean, I think that's a complete distortion of the truth. If you're going to argue a point, argue what the actual point is. And there is a generally good idea behind charter schools and the school choice movement. And it's what I talked about before, that if something does not have competition, it's going to stagnate. They're going to become too comfortable, and they're not going to achieve the same way that they would otherwise. And I'm talking about schools and the administration and the teachers, you know, everybody that makes a school run. If you do not have school choice, then that's not going to happen. And, yes, you may still have isolated instances where performance is high, where you can pull the best of the best among teachers because there are a lot of outstanding teachers out there. But if we're going to argue about it, let's argue about school choice. Let's not demonize that position. Let's not demonize those that support charter schools and have these sort of ad hominem attacks on their character. And I think that's what a lot of people were insinuating. When they, were, uh, when they were questioning Betsy DeVos. One quote that I have that I pulled out, I pulled it out when I originally heard, I heard a, a good portion of the hearing. I didn't listen to the entire hearing, but I pulled it out, and it was Elizabeth Warren questioning DeVos. I don't even have DeVos's response in this, because she didn't really say a whole lot in this hearing. So I can see why people were criticizing her, because she didn't have a clear position. She basically answered almost every question with, yes, we'll look at that. Yes, I will work with you when I'm Secretary of the Department of Education. But here's a question from Elizabeth Warren that I really want to critique.
1: Uh, Ms. DeVos, many of
0: my Democratic colleagues have pointed out your lack of experience in K 12 public schools, but I'd like to ask you about your qualifications for leading the nation on higher education. The Department of Education is in charge of making sure that the $150 billion that we invest in students each year gets into the right hands, and that students have the support they need to be able to pay back their student loans. The Secretary of Education is essentially responsible for managing a trillion dollar student loan bank and distributing $30 billion in Pell grants to students each year. The financial futures of an entire generation of young people depend on your department getting that right. Now, Mrs. DeVos, do you have any direct experience in running a bank? Oh, so much I want to unpack there, but first, why is, why are $150 billion being funneled through the Department of Education? Show me where in the Constitution the federal government has any authority to be involved with K-12 education or to be involved with education in general. Okay, please, please, Elizabeth Warren, show me why we should have $150 billion being funneled through this department. But that's a smaller point. There is no no comparison to this trillion-dollar student loan bank that she's referencing here. There's nothing like that in the private sector. It's not a bank. They don't make money. The reason why the government has to make these loans is because prices have been jacked up so much due to those subsidies that no private sector lender would actually give these loans to people in a true free market. Yes, there are private lenders that give them to them because there are are government guarantees backing them. They cannot be discharged in bankruptcy. So there are pr- private lenders providing some student loans, but those are at an increased interest rate beyond what uh, beyond what the government charges. Nobody is qualified to run this trillion-dollar student loan bank because it's not a bank. Any bank that tried to do this would have been insolvent long ago, absent bailouts by the government. There's a reason why no by, why no one in the private sector is doing this. If you could compete with the government at this, they would do it but you can't prices are too high the interest rates offered are too low and it's not a bank i don't care what what Betsy DeVos could have run in the private sector it would not prepare her to run this fake bank this bank this insolvent bank that should not exist and then tell me how horrifying is it that the, the fate of an entire generation of people is in the hands of who is selected to be the head of the Department of Education. You know, does Warren actually think this? I think it's more hyperbole. But there are a lot of young people's lives that do depend on what happens at the Department of Education. Now, because of this gargantuan student loan program, people who basically have changed the course of their lives due to what's been offered to them by the Department of Education. Has it benefited some? Yes. But I think it's hurt a lot of people's lives and you can go and you can read student loan horror stories for days online. There are entire sites devoted to it of people who have had their lives ruined by this student loan program. And just think about, Warren, think about what federalizing an issue has done. It's now made, whether Betsy DeVos or somebody else becomes the Secretary of Education, it now makes this a big deal when it should not be a big deal. There should not be people's lives hanging in the balance because of whoever Donald Trump decided to pick as the secretary of the Department of Education. And we could, of course, go deeper into that rabbit hole and say that the Department of Education shouldn't exist because the federal government does not have the authority to be involved in education. But there's just so much in that that is just maddening. And she kept hammering the point. She kept saying, I'm I'm not going to play the quote. But she kept saying, "Has anybody in your family ever taken student loans from the government? Uh, did, did you ever take student loans from the government?" Uh, and you know she's very wealthy, so obviously the answer was no. Um, but somehow, somehow being beholden to this system makes you more qualified to then run this system. And I kept seeing these people posting on their on my Facebook feed on Twitter. Elizabeth Warren destroys Betsy DeVos, and this is what the entire line of questioning was like, and then at the end, Elizabeth Warren wouldn't shake DeVos's hand. That came out a little later. I didn't see that live, but there is a YouTube video of it, and of course, I don't want that to detract from the argument. If if you just listen to the transcript, though, that's the point, basically, that Warren is making, and I did want to throw this in there that I saw an article right before starting this show that... Warren could face a challenge in the 2018 elections. She's up for re-election in 2018 and the Republican governor right now of Massachusetts actually has higher approval ratings than she does. She has very little bipartisan appeal, which is what makes it difficult I think for her to get re-elected and I don't think she's gotten elected by huge margins as a result. You know, yes, the left likes her a whole lot, but she gets very few people to cross over from the right to vote for her. So it's possible if if the Republican governor runs against her that he could win. It looked like in this poll uh, that's a very real possibility, and she only had a 44% approval rating. It was basically an approval rating, um, and then 46% of people said we should give somebody else a chance. So more people said we should give someone else a chance um, rather than, I would like to see Elizabeth Warren continue to represent me in Washington, D.C. So that'll be an interesting story to watch, especially when Warren's being touted as a potential nominee for president. And I've actually said I think she's probably the favorite right now to run. I think that it's inevitable that there will be a major correction in the stock market sometime in the next four years. I don't think Trump can perpetuate this bubble forever. And when it happens, they're going to blame Whatever Trump does, and Trump to a lot of people represents the free market. For whatever reason, people think Trump actually is a, a free market guy. A lot of people do, at least, just because he's a businessman, I guess. But they're going to vote or they're going to blame capitalism, just like they blamed capitalism for what happened under George W. Bush when he was also not a free market guy. No matter how people want to characterize him, he was a big government Republican. Um, maybe you know, his big government was a little bit different than what a Democrat's big government would look like, but you know, he, he did the Medicare Part D. He initiated bailouts and stimulus, you know all these types of things that people that actually believe in the free market would not have done. But when the economy did crash in 2008, 2009, people blamed it on Bush, this free marketeer, and all of a sudden it was capitalism that we need to fix. And I think the same thing is going to happen under Trump. And there's going to be a, an overcorrection back far to the left. I think that is ultimately what will happen. It'll be somebody like Elizabeth Warren that will be running. Obviously, there's a ton of time. I mean, remember Barack Obama back in 2008. Nobody nobody really knew who he was in 2004, and nobody would have had more than miraculous odds for him to actually run and and win the nomination even, let alone win the presidency. But those 2018 Elections will be huge. Those midterm elections will be huge because we'll see what happens in the House, where the country's kind of swinging, and it will be ha, ha, has the country embraced what Trump is doing, or if they rejected what Trump is doing. And of course, you can't tell everything from a midterm election, and it does tend to swing back to the other party in that in that midterm election after a president is elected. But I think we can draw a lot from that. And if Elizabeth Warren isn't reelected in her seat, Uh, inner Massachusetts seat then I think I think we can draw some conclusions from that that the progressive ideology is not the future of politics Uh, so I wanted to throw that in there when I started talking about Elizabeth Warren I didn't really expect to throw that in but I just read that right before another thing that tied into what I was just talking about with higher education was a story that I read it was about a week ago and uh, I saw this on Zero Hedge World's largest education company crashes after dire warning warns of unprecedented business decline. And this is Pearson PLC and Pearson, anybody that's been in college at all recently, and I don't know a ton about the history of of Pearson, but they are a textbook giant and they are very dependent on the higher education industry in the United States, in North America, and kind of as go, as goes the United States market in higher education goes Pearson PLC so what happened about a week ago is they had a huge drop in their stock price and it was due to news that they released I'll, I'll read the quote right here quote whereas we had, an, we had previously anticipated a broadly stable North American higher education courseware market in 2017 we now assume that many of these downward pressures will continue the company said furthermore while Pearson said it expected 2016 operating profit in line with guidance it scrapped its 2018 profit goal and their CEO said that Pearson is going to quote take more radical action to accelerate our shift to digital models and to keep reshaping our business. And of course, people will read that quote and think, "Oh, it's just a move toward digital." But this has been going on for a long time. That's not new news. That uh, that the textbook that the textbook industry, that the education industry, is moving toward digital models. I think what's more important here is the education sector. And here's another quote uh, from the CEO. The education sector is going through an unprecedented period of change and volatility. We have already taken significant steps on restructuring, reducing our cost base by three three hundred 375 million pounds last year. Um, and the company lost about a quarter of its market share in minutes at the beginning of Wednesday's trading day, last Wednesday's trading day. Uh, and if you look at their, if you look at their stock chart, I pulled it up. It, this is the lowest that their stock has been this entire millennium, and I didn't go back further than the beginning of the millennium. But it's down at 7.39 a share right now, and it was down 7.13. It, it was it was a little bit lower even than it is right now. But what's happening is, I think you're starting to see this higher education bubble pop, and I've talked about it a lot. This is a bubble. Uh, it's driven by student loans, by easy, essentially free money that's propping up this industry, but it's going to burst sooner or later. And I think the way it's going to burst is by people making different decisions, by people choosing not to make that, that huge investment in education, not just the financial investment, but the time investment as well. And if you're getting less and less of a return for your money, you're far more likely to look at alternatives. And then alternatives online are only getting cheaper and cheaper, Trade schools are becoming a more attractive alternative for people. And I think you're starting to see people make this decision. And th- this news was pretty big because it, it, it aligns perfectly with what I've been saying about this. There, there were people kind of questioning Pearson for a while, so this wasn't completely out of nowhere. But I think the reason why people were questioning it was for the exact reason that I'm saying college only continues to get more and more expensive. The the prices continue to outpace inflation and people are going to have to make different decisions at a certain point in time. People are not going to be taking out $100,000 a year, $150,000 a year to go to college. It's just not going to happen. But we're getting closer and closer to being at that point. If it keeps increasing at this rate, we may be a decade from college costing $100,000 a year. We very well may be. Uh, So this is going to be interesting to watch and see if any other if any other companies start to feel the effect or we start to, we start to see the effect on colleges themselves potentially. But I thought that was a story I'd bring up and I'll get off my education high horse and talk about, I think what more people are interested in and that's generally the transition of power from Barack Obama to Donald Trump. Now Donald Trump had his inauguration last Friday on the 20th. Um, his speech was short, uh, definitely sounded like quite a bit of it was written by him you know by himself it was pretty simple it sounded like when he would get up there during one of his rallies and just kind of talk that's really what it what it seemed like and unsurprisingly there was a lot of populism there i'm going to play a quick clip here that i think is perfect evidence that trump has understood the issues plaguing the country i don't think that what he's proposing is the best way to to alleviate those issues necessarily. But here's a pretty good clip from the speech that kind of embodies what he was talking
1: about. For too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. Politicians prospered, but the jobs left, and the factories closed. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Their victories have not been your victories. Their triumphs have not been your triumphs. And while they celebrated in our nation's capital, there was little to celebrate for struggling families All across our land. And the reason
0: why that kind of rhetoric really hit home for a lot of people in the United States, all over the country, is because this recovery has not been good. This Obama recovery, a lot of it's been fake, it's been very slow and tepid, and people aren't feeling the benefits of this recovery. It's the slowest recovery since World War II, and... Not coincidentally, people aren't feeling like things are getting better for them. So that's, that's why this kind of populist rhetoric has hit home. And I think also that Trump is right about a lot of the issues. Like I said right before I played that clip, uh, I do think that Washington has continued to siphon more and more power away from state and local governments and, more importantly, from the people. Uh, and they feel like this faraway power is governing them. And that this area is continuing to get richer and stronger while things aren't really improving for them. So that's why they responded to somebody saying the things that Trump says like this. You know, even if they don't agree with a lot of the details about what he says, and he doesn't say a lot of details. So I'd probably say that that's intentional on his part. He doesn't want to say too many details because enough people will respond just more to the general rhetoric about. These people have been screwing you for too long. I'm going to come in and I'm going to stop you from being screwed. So that was the tone of this whole speech. And it was kind of funny with with Barack Obama sitting there right in front of him, basically saying, this government has not served you, and I will. And he kept hammering that point home over and over again. Another clip I want to play that I think is significant, that stood out to me when I was listening to this for the first time, was when he kept discussing America first so here's the clip
1: for many decades we've enriched foreign industry at the expense of American industry subsidized the armies of other countries while allowing for the very sad depletion of our military we've defended other nations borders while refusing to defend our own and spent trillions and trillions of dollars overseas, while America's infrastructure has fallen into disrepair and decay. We've made other countries rich, while the wealth, strength, and confidence of our country has dissipated over the horizon. One by one, the factories shuttered and left our shores with not even a thought about the millions and millions of American workers that were left behind. The wealth of our middle class has been ripped from their homes and then redistributed all across the world. But that is the past, and now we are looking only to the future.
0: cuts in that. I cut out some of the long pauses he had for applause. He kept doing that throughout this entire speech and not a good venue for that. Like I said, he was talking like he was at a rally where he's going to get applause at every single, you know, basically at the end of every single sentence. And so he can pause for dramatic effect, but he was doing it in this speech and it was kind of maddening to... Watch it and listen to it. I don't want to have those long pauses on here. I don't want to subject you to that any longer than you needed to. But that was probably the most substantive part of his speech there. And he said some good things, quite a few bad things. I think some things we should be scared of. uh, Really hammering in on that on that protectionist type of language. Uh, The factories leaving. When he's saying the factories are leaving, he's insinuating it's because we've made it too easy for them to leave and be able to sell goods back into the United States when I don't think that that's the issue. I don't think the issue is that it's too easy to sell goods back into the United States. What we really should be thinking about is why is American industry not competitive? And there are a lot of reasons why American industry isn't competitive with foreigners in a lot of regards. Uh, And the You know, the way to resolve that is not to protect American industry and to make us all poorer as a result. And free trade does make us richer. And it actually has a disproportionately better effect on the poorest among us. The poorest among us are the most likely to shop at places like Walmart, places with goods where, places where almost 100% of their goods come from China and come from other countries uh so free trade has been this boogeyman and he's already saying that he'll likely issue an executive order this week calling for a renegotiation of nafta or the u.s could pull out of nafta if uh if things don't go trump trump's in his administration's way on nafta and you know are these trade deals perfect certainly not and i I would love to just have a single-page document that says, we will place no restrictions on your trade if you if you place no restrictions on our trade. That's all a trade deal really needs to be in my world. Uh, but I think NAFTA has generally done more good than bad. It's been a move in the direction of free trade, opening up trade between Canada and the United States and Mexico, and I think that's generally been a good thing for people in all three countries. Yes, we can look at factories closing down, You know, maybe factories and industries that aren't competitive with those countries closing down. We can see those clearly. A lot of people have those up front and center in their mind when people talk about free trade and think, well, if free trade wasn't happening, those factories wouldn't have closed down. But they don't think of all the other benefits that they get or that they have gotten that aren't as visible as a tombstone, as Trump called it in his speech, factories that look like tombstones scattered Across the landscape, uh, so there was a lot of protectionist rhetoric in in that little segment there and throughout the entire speech. But his use of America first and saying that phrase multiple times, I think it I think it was intentional, saying that and looking back toward the America First Committee. And of course, we've seen revisionist history coming out calling the America First Committee a pro-Nazi fascist organization anti-semitic organization just because they, they advocated for the united states to stay out of world war ii and you know maybe if that organization didn't exist the u.s wouldn't have waited as long as it did to enter world war ii and maybe the u.s would have suffered losses like russia did and and look at all the tests that the soviet union had in that conflict they had over 20 million deaths i believe You know, the U.S. lost a considerable number of people, but it would have been far worse had the United States entered earlier. But basically, the America First Committee, that was their big thing. They did not want to enter these wars over in Europe, over in Eurasia, really, because they knew it was sending boys and men off to die in these wars when America really was not at risk, when nobody really could attack America. And yes, Charles Lindbergh said some anti-Semitic things, and I'm not going to, you know, commend anybody for saying that, but to basically extrapolate the comments of one or two people that were involved in this pretty powerful organization and say that that, that is what the entire organization believes. It's it's just not fair, and it's revisionist history, like I said before. And Trump pointing at America first. I am encouraged because I think that sort of foreign policy is what we need after decades upon decades of interventionist foreign policy where we've gotten involved in all of these conflicts that really do not affect us. Until we join them, then all of a sudden they become our problem because we've gotten involved, we've gotten embroiled in them. Uh, but I, Trump has generally been okay on this. You know, I'm not going to say that... I align with him anywhere close to perfectly on foreign policy but he has said more good things than bad i think and especially when you compare him to the alternative hillary clinton that's really where i think he separated himself from her and i think the people showing up and voting overwhelmingly for for donald trump in many states i think that was a clear vote a it was the people showing that that they do not like interventionism that the war in iraq was a failure, that the war in Afghanistan was a failure, that, you know, even going back as far as the war in Vietnam being a failure, getting embroiled in Syria has been a failure. And I think all of these things are true. And anybody that's taking a taking an unbiased look at these situations would agree that if anything, we've just sacrificed people, we've sacrificed a whole lot of money getting involved in these In these things and i you know i don't want to see my peers going off and dying to defend crimea or to get involved in and arm you know arm rebels in syria who are who are probably more radical than the assad regime you know i don't i don't want my peers doing that i don't want my money going toward those types of things toward killing people toward getting us involved in issues that we should not be involved in and i think it is better to be more aligned with Russia. You know, we don't have to be allies, don't have to be best friends with Russia, but let Russia handle the things in its own backyard. We'll handle the things in our own backyard. And I think of the things in this speech, him saying America first multiple times gave me some hope in that regard. I have lost quite a bit of, of hope. He did, sur- he did surround him with quite a few of the, you know, kind of typical neocon types in his administration and who knows how much they're going to be running this show but him him saying america first multiple times did give me a little bit of hope on that regard but at the same time it also made me even more pessimistic that he's actually going to go through with something like a border tax or some sort of protectionist policy that punishes companies that go overseas punishes importers and tries to you know, I hate to keep using the word protect, but it's the best word here to protect American industry from foreign competition, when really what we need to be doing in a global economy is being competitive with the rest of the world. And America does have a lot of things going for it, has a productive workforce, has a ton of productive capacity in the United States. Uh, and if we can remove a lot of the burdens that are that businesses face, I think that's a huge step in making american business competitive and lowering or eliminating the corporate income tax would go a huge way i mean look at look at what it did for a country like ireland which was really a a, a back you know backwoods in europe for a long time and then ireland did a lot of these pro-business types of things making it a very hospitable environment for businesses to come and then it boomed Um, and of course that boom wasn't a perfect upward trajectory and they did struggle during the the downturn in the economy but i mean the point remains the same that i think making this a more hospitable country for business is it will do much more over the long term it's far more sustainable it doesn't force us to impoverish our citizens to protect the american industry and will keep us competitive moving forward you can't stop things from i mean you can't stop globalization And globalization, I mean it in terms of of trading with countries all around the world. If we want to continue our our current standards of living, you need to trade with countries around the world. It's inevitable. So you have to be competitive with those other countries. We have to find where our specialties are and in those specialties be as competitive as possible. And all these burdens facing American businesses that, that businesses in other countries do not have to face... We need to figure out a way to alleviate those things. And I know when I say that, people are going to think it's all about environmental regulations. But when you think about something like the, the payroll tax that businesses in other countries do not have to pay, you know, do not have to pay basically 12% of their employer, their employees' wage to the government to fund Social Security. That's one of many things but then all the other all the other regulations that they must face upon hiring people and all the all the anti discrimination laws, that that make you afraid to be sued if you do hire someone. It makes businesses very wary of hiring anybody new, and they don't expand until they absolutely have to. So I would like for him to be hammering that side of it, which he does on occasion. He does talk about regulations being too burdensome, and I I read that he said that he would like to cut 75% of all regulations, which is not going to happen, and I think we, we all know that. But uh, even moving in that direction would be far, far more productive than these protectionist policies, which maybe you'll see a temporary boom in factories reopening and you know maybe some job growth. But once again, as I said earlier, earlier in this episode, Those are the visible things you would see from protectionism, but you wouldn't see how all of us are gradually made poorer by not being able to buy the same goods as cheaply as we were able to before. So of all the things to be worried about heading into a Trump administration, that's probably my biggest thing right now is just the protectionism in general. And I think it would make virtually everybody poorer. And that's the last thing we need right now. I talked earlier about this being the slowest recovery since World War II and if you take away, you know, basically if you artificially raise the stand, uh, the cost of living for people, that only makes things worse. It only makes matters worse. If you can only get inferior products for the same price or, you know, you're forced basically to buy more expensive products, then we're all made worse off by that. And especially the poorest among us. Uh, f- beyond that, though, th- there are other things that, that I'm worried about heading into donald trump's regime and i think he's making it pretty clear that he is going to be he's going to carry on the tradition of big government he's going to do it the way that he thinks it should be done which maybe that would be an improvement you know if you ideologically differ from barack obama maybe you're encouraged by this at least it's somebody that you agree with more that's going to be wielding the big stick of the federal government but i think the problems that we had under Barack Obama are not going to be well, it, and that we've really had over the last century. You could trace it back, probably to Teddy Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, that type of, you know, that era of presidents where they consolidated more and more power into not just the federal government but into the executive branch. Trump's just going to continue that, and you look at the flurry of executive orders that he's already issued. It looks like that's what he's going to do. And I said it time and time again under the Obama regime. My biggest criticism of the left was that they didn't see the danger in allowing him to overstep his bounds time and time again. And when you let your guy step over his bounds, step over the bounds that are established, then all it takes is for the other group's guy or girl to get in and, you know, all of a sudden he or she can wield all that power and do things that you abhor. And I think that's what's going to happen under Donald Trump. And like I said before, I think we are going to be swinging back to the left in the next election. I don't think he will last beyond 2020. Of course, a ton to happen between now and then. But um, I I think a stock market correction or crash is in store for us sometime over these next four years. Regardless of really who was president, during that time. I think you just cannot sustain this bubble that long. You cannot keep this keep this charade going until past 2020. I just don't think it's possible. Uh, so even if you agree with more of what Trump's doing than you disagree with, I, th- I still think this is something that we should be fighting, that we should be against. And all of these executive orders have set a dangerous precedent. Now, I think the three that he signed today... Uh, I think are kind of within his, you know, within his scope. So I didn't have a huge problem with any of these. He signed one, withdrawing from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, another one, freezing federal hiring, and then another, limiting overseas abortion funding, basically limiting overseas funding to health centers that are providing abortions, which I don't know why are we, why are our taxpayers funding Overseas health centers in the first place. I don't care what services they're performing. Why is the American taxpayer, you know, when we're this far in debt, why are we funding these types of things in other countries? It makes absolutely no sense. If you want to fund these types of things, do it yourself, do it voluntarily, donate to an organization doing this. But it is so far beyond the scope of, of the United States federal government to be to be providing funding for overseas health centers. Um, then The Trans-Pacific Partnership, I think that legislation is very flawed. And I talked about NAFTA being generally a move toward free trade and away from protectionism. The TPP, though, does have a, you know, reading more and more about it, there are so many caveats, and it seems like an agreement to try to protect big producers and to try to add new regulations to producers. Uh, so I would like to see something renegotiated into more of a free trade deal than what we have currently. I don't know if that's going to be what happens after this, but negotiating treaties is within the scope of presidential powers as spelled out in the Constitution. They, they do need to be ratified by the Senate, but the Trans-Pacific Partnership was never ratified by the Senate, so Trump can decide to pull us back because it never was ratified. Uh, so this is one thing where I don't really have an issue with him doing that. It's something he said he was going to do. Uh, And then freezing federal hiring, if they're agencies under the executive branch, which they all are, then he does have the right to freeze federal hiring if he wants. You know, he's the leader of the executive branch, and those agencies, if they are in the executive branch, then the president can decide who or who not is hired. Then probably the biggest executive order that he's signed so far in terms of news coverage and importance, and it relates to my prior episode, was an executive order that directs federal agencies to ease the regulatory burdens of the Affordable Care Act. And it orders agencies to, quote, waive, defer, grant exemptions from or delay the implementation of any provision or requirement of the Affordable Care Act that imposes a quote i didn't end the quote before but a, a quote fiscal burden on any state or a cost fee tax penalty or regulatory burden on individuals families health care providers health insurers patients recipients of health care services purchasers of insurance or makers of medical devices products or medications so basically this is removing the mandate to purchase insurance that's how this is being interpreted that's the that's the purpose of this executive order And this whole thing is going to unravel without the individual mandate. Um, I don't remember how much I talked about this in my prior show, but the Affordable Care Act actually makes sense if you're trying to achieve what they would like to achieve. And basically, if you want healthy people to be subsidizing sick people, which is what you basically need... if. If insurance companies cannot discriminate based on pre-existing conditions, cannot price those pre-existing conditions, then inevitably you are going to need younger, healthier people to subsidize those older and sicker people. But young, healthy people then will start to realize, I'm paying more than my risk indicates. I'm better off just taking my chances and paying bills as they come up. I don't need health insurance if I'm going to be charged this ridiculous premium in order to go purchase it. So... They put the individual mandate in place to essentially coerce people to buy health insurance, to make everybody buy health insurance. So even though it's a bad deal for you as one of these healthier people, you still have to do it or you're going to be penalized and you're going to have to pay this tax the way the Supreme court interpreted it, a tax at the end of the year. Uh, So it made sense if that's what you're trying to accomplish, the affordable care act makes sense. And if you remove the individual mandate, it's going to cause this entire thing to unravel because then you're going to have now healthier people withdrawing from the exchanges, not purchasing health insurance because it does not make fiscal sense for them. They are much better off taking their chances rather than basically subsidizing other people's healthcare in these exchanges. So I don't know if that's the intent of this. I know the individual mandate is is probably the least popular part of Obamacare, and people want to have all those quote-unquote good parts of Obamacare where people can kind of get something for nothing in terms of getting lower-cost insurance than they would be able to in an actual free market. But the only way that that's going to happen is if you have the individual mandate in place. Uh, So I don't know if this is just kind of the first step to dismantling the Affordable Care Act and once things get worse and worse, which they are going to get worse and worse because it's going to put insurance companies in a horrendous position now because now they're basically going to have to take on these sick people with pre-existing conditions without having any coercion to force healthy people to subsidize those sicker people Uh, so the insurance companies are going to be hit hard by that and you're going to see them start to hurt even more and they're already hurting quite a bit under the affordable care act as currently constructed and then what happens at that point you know, are, then, then do we finally realize that all of this price fixing, all this control from the federal government is a failure and that we need to reinstitute markets in health care again? Or do we move in the other direction towards something like a single-payer model, something that Trump has been sympathetic to in the past? So that'll be interesting to watch. That's probably the most important executive order, hence why I'm taking the longest to talk about it. But without the individual mandate, the Affordable Care Act will not last much longer. So it'll be interesting to see what they replace it with. And Trump has talked about maybe having a public option, which basically would be government insurance for people. Uh, but it's really impossible to know. He's thrown so many things out there, thrown so much at the wall that it's hard to really know what he, what he truly thinks about it. And he's, he said things to the effect of every American will have health care, in in my administration. So what does that mean? It doesn't sound like it's a move toward markets to me. It doesn't sound like it's a move in the direction I want to see it move. But maybe I could be proven wrong. So I I don't think I'm going to delve too much more into the policy at this point. We'll see what happens the rest of this week. I'm sure there'll be more news out Wednesday to talk about in terms of actual specific Donald Trump policy. In terms of the inauguration and how it all went, I actually was surprised there weren't more protests i'm surprised there wasn't more violence there was violence there were protests there but i expected there to be serious injuries or you know maybe even deaths or something i thought it would it would get to that level because of just the the venom directed toward trump and his supporters throughout this whole election cycle and then the really the tendency for the counter trump protesters to to be violent but there really wasn't a whole lot of that, and I was, I was happy to see that. I didn't want to see any, any violence break out, anything turn into to mayhem. And there was a huge protest the next day. There were protests in city, cities all across the country for the, the women's march. It was really the women's marches all throughout the country in most of the big cities around the United States. But it seemed like that was a pretty civil event, and they didn't do it the same day as the inauguration didn't you know didn't try to supersede that event. They did their thing. Of course, I don't really agree with much of anything that they that they say. And it seemed like the women's March was more of a progressive march, just looking at the things that that people were saying in general um, and all the other issues that got conflated with with women's issues in this March, but I thought they were respectful about it and they did it the next day. And I'm all about demonstrating what you believe in. I'm all about peaceful demonstration, even when it's people I don't agree with. And I think they did a pretty good job of doing that. Now there's a lot I could pick out from that event where I think they're saying nonsense, of course, but if they're keeping it respectful, I don't have, I don't have any issue with it. They had quite an impressive turnout. I think the number I saw was over 500,000 people in Washington, D.C., and I saw in St. Paul, Minnesota, there were there was over 100,000 people there. And I actually drove into Minneapolis on Saturday, so thankfully it was on the St. Paul side. Otherwise, I might have hit it as I was driving in and maybe not been able to get as good of a parking spot as I was able to get in Minneapolis, but... Uh, great turnouts for them, and people are still marching for, uh, for what they think are lesser rights for women than for men, and I don't agree with that position. I think it's rooted in a lot of, a lot of untruths, a lot of falsehoods, uh, especially looking at now among, you know, among people in my age group, women are, are graduating from colleges at far higher rates than men, uh, women get better grades unmarried women earn at least the same as men if not more than men in that uh the 25 to 34 year old age groups and you know things are probably as good for women in the united states as they have been for women at any place and any time in history so i haven't really heard many arguments that that make me change that assessment i'm open to them uh but you know, trying to throw things like the like the false wage gap, like the 77-cent wage gap out there. I mean, it just shows that you haven't done any sort of delving into the issue, and you're just clamping onto rhetoric and clamping onto victimhood because it is soothing. Victimhood can be very soothing. Uh, but I didn't really see any good points raised by this march, and I was trying to follow what was being said. But once again, that doesn't detract from their right to do it, their right to make their voices heard. Of course, everybody's not going to think the same way that I do. So I do want to thank them for keeping it respectful, at the least. Um, Another thing I wanted to touch on before the end of this episode, I won't won't talk for too long about this, but it's about Barack Obama's legacy. And I touched on that earlier, talking about Obama and this being the slowest recovery in post-World War II United States history. But a lot of people are posting these these memes out there, and they've been doing it for years now, calling Obama a fantastic president because uh, if you look at the stock market when he took over and the stock market now, yes, the stock market has gone up substantially. If you look at unemployment from the time that Obama took over till now, the unemployment rate is, has gone down considerably. Uh, and they, they point out a lot of things like this. And I can see, once again, the comfort of posting a meme that seems to fit in with with what you believe, and what you believe is that Obama is a great president. But these things are just so misleading. First of all, many of the people posting these are the same people that say that what's good for Wall Street is bad for me, and whatever Wall Street's doing is robbing from the people. So it's funny that they would try to use the stock market as an indicator of success, Uh, and there's a great chart that Bob Murphy always uses, and I'll try to find it and post it in the uh, suggested readings links part of uh, part of the website page, part of the description. But it shows the stock market versus the Fed's monetary base, and they basically move perfectly together, almost perfectly together. There's you know a little bit of divergence here and there, but this stock market boom has been has been fed by the Fed. It's been, it's been blown up by the Fed. Uh, and you look at unemployment, if you look at the unemployment rate, it was going to go up regardless of, of who was president. But also, it's, it's very misleading because labor force participation is lower now than it was then. It's gone from nearly 66% to under 63% right now as Trump takes office. Uh, if you look at business optimism, it's higher now than it was at any point during Obama's administration. I mean, there are a lot of things to point to that show that this was a this was an inhospitable climate for business in this country during the Barack Obama administration, which makes sense considering the increased regulatory burden that they were placed under, uh, really this unprecedented eight years of basically zero interest rates that we've been under during his administration. I know he's not in complete control over that but he does exercise a considerable influence over monetary policy no matter what anybody wants you know no no matter what anybody tells you the fed is is pretty politically motivated and then most importantly of all we've been at war all eight years of his administration and this guy coming in as an anti-war candidate i supported barack obama back in 2008 primarily because it seemed like he was truly anti-war um I did lean left at the time too, so I ate up a lot of his, a lot of his fiscal policy and a lot of his, you know, a lot of his economic policy, a lot of his ideas on on those types of issues, on domestic issues. But the primary reason why I supported him was because of foreign policy. One of the things that brought me over to libertarianism initially it was foreign policy, because the points that they were making it made a lot of sense when you think about if you have big government to administer domestic policy, it's probably going to turn into big government in terms of foreign policy as well. It's difficult to have both together. And then the same principles, when you really think about it, that call for non-intervention abroad, namely that we don't want to impose our way of living on other people, that you don't want to control others' lives, that they have sovereignty, all of those things apply to the individual as well. And when you start thinking about if you, if you tout this non-interventionist policy for those reasons, how can you at the same time advocate for exerting more and more control over people's lives, whether it's in their pockets or whether it's in what they can do? And it extends to business as well because businesses at the end of the day are collections of individuals. And the more, the more restrictions and regulations and, and red tape that you force businesses to go through, The more difficult it is for them to choose their own destiny you know for for them to have freedom for them to have sovereignty just like i always hoped that other countries would have that i didn't want the u.s interfering in in their sovereignty so i mean that's how i came from being an obama supporter in 2008 to being where i am today but he didn't even keep any of the anti-war promises that he made during his campaign and he has been an interventionist president maybe not as interventionist as some other members of the Democratic Party would have been. He's not as interventionist as many of the Republicans are either. You know, At least we didn't have John McCain in the White House or Lindsey Graham in the White House or somebody of that ilk, but he, he kept us embroiled in these foreign conflicts. And I think one of the reasons why Donald Trump won was it was a rejection of that kind of thinking the Bush-Obama type of thinking that we need to be embroiled in these foreign conflicts. I think that's the biggest thing to take away is we were at war those eight years and that Obama didn't keep any of the anti-war promises that he made during his campaign. And am I naive enough to think that a president is going to keep every single promise that he makes during an entire campaign? Not at all. But Obama did not keep any of those promises. And I think that's where progressives and libertarians alike can stand in solidarity against him you know can stand in solidarity against this this sort of deifying of him that we've seen people crying that he's no longer going to be in office SNL did a song to him you know there was there there was hero worship basically in favor of Obama here at the end of his term and I think his legacy will go down eventually in the history books as him being at best a mediocre president. I do not think he was a good president. I think we are far worse situated both domestically and abroad than we were when he took office. And that was after George Bush had a pretty horrible eight years as well. And things were not good whatsoever when Obama took office. So for me to say that means that he had to do a lot wrong. Now, if I'm going to try to be nice to him, I will say that I did like his stance on Cuba and opening up Cuban-American relations once again. I thought that was a very good move, um, and I liked his commutation of Chelsea Bradley Manning's uh, sentence. I thought those were both good things. I I I think the embargo of Cuba was ridiculous. You know, maybe it made sense at the time, but. It's 50 years later, and all that we're doing is impoverishing the Cuban people and probably making them feel anti-American sentiment and really making Castro stronger. I had a whole episode I talked about Castro, I remember, for about 20 minutes after he died. So you can go back and listen to that if you really want to hear what I think about Cuba. Uh, But I did like the commutation of Chelsea Manning's sentence as well, but I wish he would have extended it to... You know, to to Julian Assange, and to Edward Snowden as well. You know, if you're gonna if you're going to be if you're going to do that, be consistent. And all these guys, yes, I know the situations are different, and I know I've I've heard some other libertarians drawing a distinction between Chelsea Manning and Edward Snowden, but uh, at the end of the day, especially if you're Especially if you're going to commute Chelsea Manning. I think that you can, there are a lot more arguments in favor of having not commuted her sentence. Uh, but if you're going to commute Chelsea Manning, then you need to pardon Ed- Edward Snowden as well. Uh, because I think Snowden, what he did, was far more defensible. It's far easier to take the side of defending him than of defending Chelsea slash Bradley Manning. Uh, so I wanted to end on a little bit of a positive note for Obama, but these two terms have certainly been overwhelmingly negative from my perspective. So I'm not entering into the Trump administration with a whole lot of hope, but I don't think it's a I don't think it's a huge task to do better than what Obama has done because I think he has left us worse off than when he took over. Uh, I think that's pretty much everything that I want to touch in this episode there are a couple other stories i had on deck but i don't want to take this much beyond an hour i think i'm at about an hour right now so i appreciate you listening if you made it to the end of the episode i know there's a lot of content packed in there Uh, i had to i had to fit in a ton after not having done one all week but hopefully i'll have another episode out on wednesday thanks again for for taking the time to support this show to listen and i look forward to hearing everybody's feedback till next time